there, I'm Chantrice King and you're listening to Welcome to the House, a podcast from the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale that explores stories of the past, present, and future told by the Black people who know them best. All right, thank you so much for joining us here on the Welcome to the Afam House podcast. Um, we'd like you to start by introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Tanisha Townsend, also known as Gourmet's Glass. Excellent. Um, so what do you do, Tanisha? I do things and things and stuff. Uh, but seriously, I am chief wine officer of Girl Meets Glass. And what that is, I'm a wine educator. I teach wine courses at a couple of different universities. I do master classes, virtual wine tastings. I also create content online for different wine organizations whether that be on Instagram, YouTube, um, their websites, things like that. I also write for a few online outlets. I have my own social media that I handle. I have a few podcasts, Wine School Dropout, The Wine Hour, and I will be, you heard it here first, starting my very own soon. I just have to come up with a name. I don't know if I want to see the Girl Meets Glass or Tanisha Townsend or give it like a cute little funky Y name. I'm not sure yet, but yeah, those are the things that I do. What would be the difference between um, the three podcasts that you have? So Wine School Dropout is, uh, the first season was narrated and it was quick bites, 10 to 15 minutes on a particular wine topic whether that be what is the difference between champagne and other sparkling wines? Does old wine really mean that it's better? So you can listen to that one episode and have information on one specific topic. The second seat, and the reason I did the first season that way is because I wanted people to have kind of a understanding of wine. Those are questions that I get often about whether it's wine language, is old wine really the best kind of wine? things like that. So I wanted people to be able to listen to that information, listen to the episode, get the information, and then use it right away. Since it's short and very to the point, succinct, they can take that, go to a restaurant, to a wine shop, and use that knowledge that they just learned from the podcast. For the second season, I wanted to introduce people to other people of color in the wine industry, and also let them know that there is more to the wine industry than just I make wine, um, I sell wine, uh, or I serve wine in a restaurant. And uh, also to know that there are a lot of people of color abroad in the wine industry. So everyone in the second season is a person of color that does not, that has a business interest outside of America. So we have Provence, we have China, we have Tasmania, South Africa. And that was just a really fun season to do. So that's why school dropout. The Wine Hour is a podcast with other wine professionals, and I have a segment on there where I answer questions, the audience questions about wine. I'll talk about a grape or maybe a region to give just some quick information on that, and then the rest of the segment is on the audience questions, and they usually have a few questions. Sometimes they're shy, but they usually have some questions, so that's the difference in the, in the two. And then what would your third one be about? The third one, uh, I, 
That one, I wanted to also be narrated, but a mix of narrated and then also interviews. And I want that to be a deep dive into regions and grapes. Being in France, a lot of people have questions about French wine region. So I wanted to be a deep dive into, okay, what is Bordeaux? What is the region about? Some history about it. What are the grapes? What is the difference from the right bank to the left bank? Things like that. Excellent, thank you. Um, how did you, well, I know this about you, but how did this black woman from you know Chicago, <laughs> how did this black woman from Chicago become so interested in wines? Um, not that black people cannot be interested in wine and black people from Chicago, but it's not like there are wineries in Chicago. Right. And, and no one took it that way that uh, you were like, um, so Black people can't like wine? Is that a problem? Black people like everything. We can be everywhere. We can do anything. But how I got into wine specifically, I was living in D.C. at the time. And uh, there are wineries in Maryland and Virginia. And so I started going to those wineries and just became fascinated with how wine tasted and how it was created. Like just tasting, I was like, wow, this is delicious. It was also a stressful time of my life. I was in graduate school. So, I mean, drinking was kind of a necessity to live at the moment because stress was here. Oh, and this is a podcast. My hand is up high over my head for those that can't see me. Um, and so from there, just learning, uh, tasting it at wine festivals and things like that. I happened to be at one wine festival and talked to the winemaker of this one that I thought was amazing. I have no idea what wine it is to this day. But they were explaining their process to me and why it tasted the way it did. And I just couldn't grasp how this wine in my glass tasted like raspberries, but there weren't any actual raspberries or cherries in the wine. I'm like, so you like crushed the juice in here with the grapes? No, I was like, okay, so you mix it together and ferment it together? Again, no. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like raspberries growing near where you, he said, girl, no. So I was like, okay, I just have to figure this out on my own. Let me just drink this wine while I'm here and then I'll figure it out. So I went to my dear friend Google and got the answer as to how wine tastes the way it did. And I was like, well, I clearly need to know more. So I enrolled in a wine certification course because, you know, why not? I didn't have enough stuff to do with grad school and working full time. Let's get a wine certification. So I went and did the wine certification. I was like, well, this is fantastic. And then that's how the wine career started. So what, can you tell us what you found out about how <laughs> the wine was tasting like cherries and berries and stuff? It, the simple answer to not be a chemist here on the podcast is it depends on the soil. Different soil types lend different flavors to different grapes. Something that grows in chalk is different than grows in limestone, is different than grows in sand, is different than grows in clay. And then you have to take the amount of sunlight, the amount of rainfall, how warm it is during the day, how cool it gets during the night. All of that comes into play to give the wine its flavor. And where it is, Merlot, let's say a Cabernet Sauvignon grape from California tastes different than a Cabernet Sauvignon grape in Bordeaux, France. Then it tastes different than the one in Chile because the sun is different, the rainfall is different, the slope of land is different, the soil is different. 
all of that comes into play in the final flavors of a wine. Thank you. That was a very simple answer. Thank you. I love the yes. sort of the soil lens, like the grape of flavor. I love that. Um, because you shouldn't have to have a degree in chemistry and biology in order to enjoy wine. Like an easy answer could be there. Yes, could I give you the complex answer and write an equation on this board behind me? Sure, but that's not what we're here for. Thank you. I like I like simple things in life. Um, so you went from that wine certification in um, DC to now living in Paris and doing Girls Meets Glass and being a wine expert and stuff like that in Paris. How did you make that transition? What What's the story behind that? Another abridged version of the story. Um, I met, I spoke at a conference one year and met a woman there. I was very excited to meet her because she was black and I didn't see too many black people in the industry at this time. And we, you know, we talked during the conference, exchanged information. And then we went on a, a wine trip after there was a group of us and she was in the kind of older group, but then I was kind of in the younger group. It just happened to split that way. But we kept in contact after the conference. We didn't get to talk much, you know, during this time, but we kept in contact after. And she messaged me one day. She was like, hey, I can't teach my classes next semester. Something has come up. I remember you saying that you have teaching experience because I was actually teaching a wine course at a college in Maryland. And uh, do you want to teach my wine courses next semester? Oh, by the way, remember I'm in Paris. And I was like, what? You are what? what? Girl, yes, I'm coming tomorrow. And I was like, okay, wait. So I actually won't have everything packed up tomorrow, but it's like, yes, I'll take it. Like, you know, I straightened my collar up. I was like, okay, Tanisha, pull yourself together. Yes, I'll take it. Thank you very much. I'm very interested. Um, if you can have your people contact my people and we will work out what we need to work out and we will go from there. And so uh, long story short, her, it all worked out. And we had this conversation maybe July 2013. And I came over to Paris in January 2014. And started teaching the class beginning of that February. And then you never really left. <laughs> And I've been here since. Well, I left for, when I was here for that semester, I was like, I mean, that class was stressful. Those kids, teaching French kids is a whole different, different ball game to say the least. So teaching them. And then I was like, all right, well, I love living here. I love being in Paris. I have to figure out how to make this work for my life. Like this needs to be what I do where I am. I feel like I belong here. And I had to go back to the States just because of the way, you know, visas and things like that work out. But I said, as soon as I get back, I am going to plan how I can come back over. And that's what I did. And so I came back over permanently that October. So I've been here permanently since October, 2014. So we're coming up on seven years. Oh my God, it's been that loud. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I remember meeting you in that first iteration of you being there in Paris, and I had not realized it was such a journey ago. <laughs> That's the story, girl. Whew. So awesome. Um, and in that seven years, um, you've had to 
make a transition, not only sort of like culturally, but also in terms of language, like linguistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and how have you bridged that, um, bridge that gap between sort of as, as a native English speaker to now being in France and um, learning French. For, for those listening, you, Fran- Paris particularly is the kind of place where you don't necessarily have to learn French if you don't want to. You could very, you could go many, many, all, all the years that you are there and never learn French. You can have very, like an English circle. Like I know people who have children there don't speak any French. Their children go to public school. They don't speak any French. You know, so you, it's, it's a place where you could not engage in the language if you wanted yeah. to. Um, but what has missed so much yeah you miss so much of the culture of the people you you miss a lot when you don't get French because you miss the people um you miss things that are going on Uh, I never knew I mean of course I did know what it felt like to be illiterate but to be illiterate is not a good feeling and people who come over and fully live their lives without learning the language, I'm like, I don't understand how you feel comfortable. Like I feel uncomfortable all the time because there are things that I don't know. Like while I do speak French and do know some French, I of course wouldn't call myself fully fluent, but to not be completely comfortable wherever I go is still weird for me. Whereas in the United States, like, no, I'm perfectly comfortable. I know if anyone starts talking to me, I can understand them. But here, it's not the same. Someone, you know, maybe from the South or the North with their accent, they say something to me and I'm like, you're, you're going to have to write that down. Or can you can you speak into my phone translator app? Can you say that again? Because yeah, your words don't, I, I didn't learn that in, in, in a book. I don't know this. So, yeah, sorry, you were about to say something. I cut you off my bad. No, you didn't cut me off. Language. But like, how did you, um, how has, how would you describe your journey to sort of learning French? Uh, long, because it is still occurring. Uh, it's still happening as we speak. I still uh, meet with teachers and practice language. I still meet with language groups and talk to them because I am someone that has trouble making mistakes publicly. And uh, in order for me to open my mouth to say something, I have to be absolutely sure of what I'm saying. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to get up in front of a crowd and, or I mean, it doesn't have to be a crowd, it'd be five people. I don't want to get up in front of these five people and I'm splicing verbs and using the wrong article. So I have to be completely sure of what I'm saying. This might be due to the fact that I know they haven't met people like me. They haven't seen people like me, woman, Black American in their circle. So I can't come into their circle being less than. Like, you know, this in America, if you do anything as a Black person, I always say, oh, you have to be better than the best. You have to give more than 100%. So I've always taken that with me in my life. So what I do now is if I go in with my full confidence, start off in French, they will start speaking to me in English. And I'm perfectly fine with that because in English, I'm top of my game when it comes to wine here, like I'm fine. And so now that I go in with the confidence of knowing a decent amount of French, that has really changed the game. And then they'd be like, oh, you're the American. Oh, okay. Would you like me to speak in English? You know what? Sure. Yes. Let's speak in English. And so then we do that. 
And that makes it easier for me for two reasons. One, I'm fully fluent in English. And two, it helps me to not have to translate it back into English when I report it. My audience is English speaking, whether they are American, Canadian, British, Australian, German, Spanish, and you know, English is just a common language. My audience, uh, it's English. And so speaking to them, having a full conversation in French, and me now having to write down notes and you know, translate it and write down the note in English and then write or do a video or whatever in English, that takes a lot. So I'm like, yeah, let's just speak in English. Also mentioning language and the differences in language, the way French people talk about wine is different than the way Americans talk about wine, is different than the way I talk about wine. And I want to, remain or continue to talk about wine the way I do. And I don't want that part of me to change because my approach and the way I talk about it, that's what resonates with people. So I don't want to change that. So there we go. Thank you. Also kudos to you and your journey to learning French. As someone who speaks French, who's been learning French for like a long time, who's like pretty fluent. Also French people are also not very nice to people Girl, learning no. French, you know? Because no. the they'll be like, what did you say? What did you say? Qua? Qua? And it's like, okay, you know what? Forget it. And also their relationship with the language is completely different, right? Like, you know, um, the, um, the sort of emphasis on like grammar and saying things correctly, like children will correct you. Being like, on which means like, we don't say it like that. You know, like five-year-olds will say that to you. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, you know, for adults, it's even more so like that. And I think that like English is a, is a different kind of, of language because, you know, particularly here in the US, right? Like we'll have government officials get on the TV and you're like, that's an incorrect sentence. Mm -hmm. And a ball face mm -hmm. lie, but also an incorrect sentence. Right, right. <laughs> let's start with the incorrect sentence part. We'll we'll get back to the lie part of it, but let's start with the incorrectness of it all. You yeah, but we're not telling people like, oh, you don't necessarily like say it like that. It's like, okay, well, there are a variety of ways to say this particular sentence. Especially mm -hmm. oh. when it's someone that you know isn't a native speaker like them saying that to you like you know I'm not native so you know I have learned this later you know I didn't grow up with this whereas that's not something we'll do um I think also it's due to the fact that so many people speak English around the planet that English has so many different iterations that some parts of the true grammar of it have been lost and what is correct and then there's so much slang and how I didn't realize how much slang I, and maybe it's not slang, it's just the way we use the language spoken versus written, how much slang I speak when I thought I spoke like, oh, I think I speak, you know, pretty good English. But a lot of it is kind of slang when you talk to someone else who learned English from a book. Now, if they learn English from watching Friends, which I mentioned Friends because a lot of French people say they've learned English from watching that show then, you know, they know more of um, the terms and the words, the way we use it, like how we use contractions. Like there was this one person I talked to who kept saying, oh, well, he did not do that. Well, we cannot say that. Well, I will not go there. And I was like, yeah, if you want to really be native, you got to contract that. Like people, how many times you hear people say, I did not do that. Like, I did not hear that. I did not under, I do not understand that. I'm like, no one. 
And I'm like, let me tell you that now, no one talks like that. You will automatically be seen as a foreigner if you come up. Well, I cannot understand what is going on. No, if you don't say can't and stop playing with me, like didn't, don't, just please smush that together and contract it. Yeah, but even the way we understand language, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. like even your terms of like contractions. I wonder if we went around and we asked people in English, like native English speakers, like, what's a contraction? Like, how do you make a contraction? Like, I wonder how many people would be like, be able to identify those examples that you gave and be like, I'm sorry, are we supposed to subtract? What? Mm-hmm. Right. And same with phrasal verbs. I was like, phrasal, like, oh, phrasal verb. French people are like, oh, phrasal verbs are so hard and I don't understand. And I was like, phrasal verb, what? And then I went and looked it up. I was like, oh, like we use it like it's nothing. Like, oh no, you put on a shirt. You take you take off a coat. You don't put it off. You put it on and you take it off. They're like, but you don't put it off? I was like, absolutely not. You put off doing your homework till the next day. You don't take. And they're like, but why it's put? I was like, oh, it's not an explanation. You just need to know it. That's it. Yeah, but that's so interesting. But you know, if there's, if there is a way in which we approach, you know, language in this way, I also wonder what are the ways in which um, you talked earlier about the ways that French people talk about wine and or like their wine language and your wine language are different. Like, what are some of those differences? One of the big differences is when people, when French people talk about wine, they talk a lot about specific tasting notes and they use this wine language they oh acidity and minerality and uh, tart and they talk a lot about soil and sunlight and um that kind of thing winemaker techniques like oh this had a very flinty taste with uh, hints of dark chocolate and maybe a bit of a berry note and um, heavy on the oak it was a real crush for me and i'm like if i said that everybody in my audience would be like who is this where did y'all find her like if I say that during our event, y'all would be like, um, where did you find her? She's fired. I don't understand why she's talking this way. When I talk about wine, I talk about it. I'll mention fruit characteristic and fruit flavors because that is important because when you think about food pairings, you need to know how something tastes to know what to pair it with. Like, you know what barbecue sauce tastes like. You know the other hints of flavor in barbecue sauce. You know what ketchup tastes like. So, you know, okay, people can put ketchup on their eggs, but probably don't put barbecue sauce on their eggs. Can you explain that, why that is? No, you know the flavor, so you know why those work together. So what I like to do when I talk about wine is I'll give you some general fruit flavors, help the audience to be able to pick out fruit flavors, and then talk about wine in terms of pairing and in terms of situational pairing not necessarily food pairings. Because a lot of the food pairings that you'll see on the back of a wine bottle, people talk about, oh, this is really good with chicken dishes, or this is great with steak, or maybe a beef roast, or this is wonderful with the bouillabaisse and us and then um, this meat in a, a nice au jus. Okay, but I'm eating pepperoni pizza for dinner tonight, so what am I drinking? Like, I want a hot dog and crispy fries. What do I drink with that? you know what, it's fried chicken Friday, what am I drinking? Like, help me with this. So I like to pair it with food people actually eat on a day-to-day. Yes, people cook elaborate meals and they may make entrecote or they may do, you know, a macro de cana or they may do these other fancy things, 
But listen, on a Tuesday night, and you just had got home from work, you had a rough day, you want to kick your feet up, turn on the TV, and you want something to drink, what does Tanisha think I should drink for this night? Or what does she say you drink when you have a hard night? Oh, it's a nice Friday, Saturday night. I got a date coming over. We turning on the fireplace. I'm gonna light some candles, got the jazz playing. What do you drink then? Do you bring out a rosé? Do you drink a heavy Cabernet Sauvignon? Or do you have like a light, acidic, zesty Sauvignon Blanc? Which wine are you choosing for that evening? I mean, to start, the wine that your partner, you think your partner will enjoy, if you don't know that, definitely go with the red wine. Red wine goes to fireplaces. That's my hint. That's not, not a hint. That's my helpful hint to you all. That's my tip for the day. Thanks. So as you are living proof and you show us, um, wine is something when people think about, they think about like France or some other European country like Italy. Um, but we know that not all people involved in, in wine are white or European and that other people have rich traditions of winemaking. Um, so can you tell us a bit about like the traditions of black winemakers across the globe that you know of? Sure, there are several in the States and they actually have an organization, the African American Association of Vintners, AAAV, and I think it's .org. And so that's something to check out. And there are several winemakers in that organization. Of course, a lot of them are in California. Also know all 50 states make wine. So if you're looking for wine across America, all 50 states make wine. As far as in other places, there is um, a black champagne maker in Champagne here, it's a woman. There's another woman that I just found out about that has a champagne brand and she's in London. There is a black woman making wine in the south of France. Her wines are absolutely amazing. There are a few black winemakers in South Africa. And the thing about South Africa, South Africa is actually very well known in the wine industry as being a well-known wine region, but they don't get the notoriety they deserve because they came into the industry on a main, on a high level much later because of apartheid. So apartheid is what held them up. And you know, apartheid lasted well into like our lifetime. Um, so people were still feeling the effects of that in like the 80s and the 90s. And then some people say even still to this day, but that's what held the South African wine industry up. But now there are several winemakers there that are flourishing. There are some people in, is it Kenya? That are um, some popular sommeliers in Kenya that are really doing some um, big things. So again, Black people are in everything, everywhere. Don't count us out. Don't think, oh, I didn't think Black people did that. We do it and probably better than some of these other people. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um... Actually, one of the best bottles of wine I've ever had in my life, obviously I don't remember the name, was a South African wine. I hope it was black owned. Mm -hmm. um, but it was so good and a friend brought it back from a trip. And I was like, South Africa makes wine? What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the game. Yeah, um, also some really good wine that I've also had was homemade in Trinidad. Um, 
Caribbean people also make like homemade wine. It was a rice rice wine. Um, and it was also very delicious, right? Like there's this, I think that wine, particularly for um, Black people in the context of the Caribbean, I'll talk about where, where I know and more specifically Trinidad and Tobago and Panama make um, wines and like alcoholic drinks at home that we share in community with like one another and that we like ferment over like a really long like over months or whatever in preparation for when people are going to be over of like Christmas coming or like some other kinds of like holidays but we don't have all we don't necessarily those stories aren't a part of like larger narratives throughout like winemakers and people having access to wine and those kinds of traditions. Yeah we think of with the countries you named we think of rum and the history of rum and uh, other spirits from Caribbean countries but we all know why rum got to other places and spices, but we won't get into that during this time. Yeah. It's not good, y'all, it's not fun. Hmm? Um, okay, why do you think there are like all these hidden stories and um, around like black winemakers? Hmm? I think because they have come into the game later and gatekeepers like to keep themselves, I mean, they like to keep the gate shut and they don't want anyone coming in after them. They want to keep certain things looking a certain way and they like to keep their authority. And so if they let other people in, then well, they won't have as much authority. And, or, you know, they just won't be seen as great as they are if they have a lot more competition. Also, Black people were slow to kind of get into wine because that was seen as um, a rich white thing. It was seeing the things that, you know, that they did on, did you watch people do like growing up? Like that's what they drank on soap operas. Okay. Like I would see what Dallas and like, okay, they're drinking wine on there. Like that's how I looked at it. So I didn't put myself in that situation or see myself in that place. But now, I mean, you know, we have access to things. We have access to money. We have access to places. We travel. We can afford to drink things other than cognac so we drink wine and we love it and now we work in wine and we make wine and we sell wine and we export and import wine and we teach wine and we talk about wine on podcasts we do all of the things yeah one of my favorite episodes from wine school dropout is sort of like the affordability of wine but also the transformation of wine um, from this thing that we thought of only like rich white people um, get access to um, to something that sort of like everybody can have access to like there's a price point for um, for like everyone and I, and I forget what's like similar to that like I think it was like a particular kind of ice cream that people were like oh my god only rich people eat this ice cream but like now everyone has ice access to like the ice cream um and the way that sort of like expands the market for everyone yeah I don't remember that ice cream but now I want ice cream <laughs> I said the ice cream thing right. somewhere else but it just okay it I'm like no, no, no. You, you didn't say it about the ice cream, like, but I just remembered someone said <laughs> Like, let me look at the transcript. Let me look at the transcript. I might have said it. No, that's so funny. Um, do you have a fun fact or a fun story about wine history that you'd like to share with us? Okay, one thing, and I like telling this story because, well, it's just funny to me. So 
a lot of people know of the great Malbec and they know Malbec of coming from Argentina. And it's a red grape, heavy, uh, bold wine with a little spice at the end, little notes of leather and cocoa and stuff like that. Well, Malbec actually originated in the Caor region in Southern France. The thing is, Caor very landlocked and you know, water is kind of around just the outer edge, the Western edge of France. So for them to get their wines out, they had to take them up to Bordeaux and then send them through the rivers there. Bordeaux was also growing Malbec and they were putting Malbec into their blends. And Bordeaux was getting a lot of money from England in order to sell their wines to England. England was paying them top dollar because England wasn't making wine at the time. So Coor, they would send their Malbec up to Bordeaux like, hey, put this on your boat, send this out. They were like, yeah, hold on a second. We're gonna send our wines out first. If there's any space left or we need any more wine, we'll call you. Of course, they never called them. Of course, they never put their wines on the ship. They never did any of that because Bordeaux, they were haters. And they were like, no, we're just going to send ours out. So good luck in your lives. Well, people from Cahors take their wine back down to Cahors and then they would just drink it amongst themselves. Wines are good. They just drink it amongst themselves. Well, Phylloxera hit. And Phylloxera was this bug that the story here, it's so funny to hear the story here versus hearing it in America. Here they say, it, well, it was this bug that the Americans brought over that killed all of our vines. The Americans don't tell the story that way. But the French say, specifically say, this bug that the Americans brought. But anyway, I digressed. It's this bug that would get to the vines and then it would like uh, bite them and it would release this venom into the vines that would kill it. It decimated like 90% of the vineyards in France. This also happened in Spain and Portugal. This bug went everywhere. Come to find out that the only way to fight it was to use American rootstock. So they would attach an American root to the vine of um, French, Spanish, and these other ones. That's why they think the Americans brought it over, kind of a little, you know, thing there. So luckily, people took clippings of healthy vines from France to other places. So that's how native French grapes got in all these other countries. They took some of these clippings of Malbec and Caor to Argentina and Argentinian winemakers planted it and then started making the wine and Argentina is what put Malbec on the map and really saved it from being extinct as a grape. And now Argentina is the region that is known for Malbec and people rarely hear about Calor. So that is my history fun fact. I don't know how fun it is for the people of Calor, but it's fascinating. Uh, you know, another hmm? <laughs> another F word there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not fun, but fascinating at the very least. Excellent. So what are some basic things that you think are helpful for like everyone to know some like basic wine language? Champagne is only from the Champagne region of France. Everything else is sparkling wine. They are very particular about that. They worked very hard to be who they are and what they are, and they will fight you physically and also legally if you use the word incorrectly. So just know that to be true. Um, Bordeaux, Rhone Valley, uh, blends. Those are blends. Actually, if you look at the, here's a hint. 
if you take the map of France and you split it like right where Lyon is and you like draw a line through Lyon to split the read, split the country in half. Things above Lyon, single varietal. Things below are blends. So you have Bordeaux and the Rhone and Provence and Languedoc-Roussillon, those are blends. Of course, there are exceptions to France. You know, it's exceptions to everything. But the major rule is those are blended wines. But the things above, um, think Alsace, where they have the grape on the label. It's just Riesling, it's just Pinot Gris, it's just Gewürztraminer. If you're in Burgundy, if it's red, it's Pinot Noir. If it's white, it's Chardonnay. These are, and the Loire, these are all single varietal wines in the bottle. Excellent, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, so I heard you ask this on your podcast with someone and I really like this question. If you oh were gosh. a wine, what wine would it be? <laughs> uh, shoot, I should have come up with an answer too when I asked them. Um, I think maybe I'd be Pinot Noir because I think Pinot Noir is, um, it can be temperamental. It can seem like it's not giving you a lot and it's very tight and it's very closed. But when it's in the right conditions and the right temperature and nurtured the right way, it gives you everything you need. It gives you uh, fruit, it gives you flavor, it gives you um, power, it gives you structure because it was nurtured and it was in the right environment. And I feel like I'm that way. If I am, they say bloom where you're planted, but that's not always the case for people. For me, I can't just be planted anywhere and I'll bloom. I need to be in a particular environment, in a certain environment and nurtured a certain way. And luckily I found that environment and I am nurtured. So I am growing like Pinot Noir. You also do a really good job of doing that for yourself hmm? like you know creating that creating that nurturing environment and stuff like that because we didn't get into it but like you've definitely had a lot of like trials and tribulations um while like being in Paris, but, <laughs> but you've definitely done an amazing job of like keeping at it and like being um being a businesswoman an entrepreneur who sort of like keeps yourself out there keeps the next thing going like um, leveling up, doing the things, all the things. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think and, it comes a time where you just realize, okay, like people say sink or swim. And so you're like, do you want to sink or do you want to swim? And yeah, I, I wanted to swim. I, I wanted to swim. I would see, and also I would see a light and mind you, I'm not at the end of my tunnel. There are many, many tunnels. But when you see a light or you can see a finish line, you're like, okay, I can see how far to go now. I can keep going. And so that's what made it easier, setting maybe smaller goals for myself where I could see it and then get to it and then come up with another one. And then also at a point, it's not, when you first move here, you can always say, okay, I'm gonna go back home. Like, I, I'll just go back to the States. It doesn't work out. I can always go back to the States. It comes a point where that's not an option anymore. Like, yeah, you can still go back, but you can't go back and slide into your life like you would have had, you know, if, when, if you had gone back year one. Year three, it's like, okay, go back to the States and what, start over? Year four, okay, start over? No, you don't want to keep stopping and starting over. At some point, you have to just, you know, dig your heels in, put your feet, you know, firmly plant them on the ground and do it. 
just push through. So here we are pushing. You are absolutely pushing. I also love your story because I think that there, it reminds us that there are like no age limits to these things, right? Like we get yeah. to, we get to have so many, every year, every day that we live, we get to have so many lives, you know, yes. like. Because I'm not 25. <laughs> you're not 25 or 22 or 18 no. or 30. Yeah. No. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think that sometimes we can think that like, oh, I'm like too old for this or whatever. And it's like, no, what? <laughs> You're and that's a good thing about me wanting to uh, get into the wine industry because the wine industry traditionally older people, like people in it were just older. So this is a place where I can come into this industry and feel comfortable or, and feel, I mean, young essentially. Whereas maybe like the fashion industry, not so much. Um, just using as a comparison, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be a model. Uh, probably not. I mean, for reasons, but also for age, you know, that's more of a young industry. Fashion is more of a young industry. So that's not something you come into later in your life, but wine is. So good thing I picked this or it picked me. So here we are. Yeah, that's perfect. And like, even in fashion, you know, like people who like older women we, we see in fashion are like in more managerial worlds and stuff like that. And like have very, get portrayed as very like domineering and they've also been in it for like forever. Mm-hmm. Right, they um, got in it at 18. And yeah. And they worked in it for the past 40 years and here they are. So they're hardened by the industry because that industry can be vicious. Excellent. Um, so my last question, um, it's almost over. It's almost over. I know. Haven't we had such a good time? I'm I'm so fun. Mm -hmm. Um, my last question is, um, if I were a wine, what wine would it be? Okay. If you were a wine, what wine would you be? Mm, I would say that you are, I would say Sauvignon Blanc. And I would say Sauvignon Blanc because you are peppy, zippy, you have a lot of energy, you are always fresh and current, you're not necessarily traditional in the way you do things, you are looking for, um, you want to do things kind of out of the box, and it, but you still have a certain way that you like things to be, if that makes sense, and that is kind of essentially Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc is very citrusy. It's high in acid. It doesn't need particular environments to grow in. It can grow in a lot of places, but of course it is better in certain places. And also it is something that you drink young. It's not something that you have to age and then has to blossom and develop and change over 20 years. No, it's like what is in the bottle is what you get. And that's also how it is with you. Like what you see in it, this is what you get. It's None hidden, nothing gonna come out in five years. It's me. So I'd say something wrong. That is the perfect description of me. <laughs> <laughs> that is like me to a chief. That is so good. Oh, I love this game. <laughs> Bring a wine expert, ask the wine expert what wine you are. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Welcome to the Afghan House. This podcast is a project of and sponsored by the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. Special thank you to our guest, Tanisha Townsend. All links on where you can find her on the internet are in the show notes. This episode was written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Shantrice King. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast, like, and share it. Until next time, continue to explore, uplift, and celebrate all the rich Black stories the world has to offer.